Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Time of Monsters podcast. This podcast previously ran on the Time of Monsters substack and now has a new home here at The Nation. I want to thank Mika Whitman for providing the music for this episode. Our first guest is Linda Hirschman. In the past, I've described Linda as the Cassandra of the American left for her writings on reproductive freedom. She's been a far-sighted prophet warning us of the moment that has now arrived, the end of Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. In her writings going back decades, she's noted that there's no federal solution to abortion with each state deciding its own laws. Rather, as with slavery before the Civil War, the nature of the divide on this issue will force a national solution. As Lincoln said in 1858, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That was true then, and it's true now. Which makes Linda's new book on the abolitionist movement all the more relevant. It's titled The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved a Nation. It's not a book of antiquarian interest alone, but rather it's a timely study of the problems of activism in a country divided against itself. And this is very crucial that it's not just an antiquarian book, that it is a book that has huge kind of resonance right now. And it's particularly interesting that it comes at this sort of, you know, moment at which the Supreme Court, you know, is going to overturn, you know, 50 years of jurisprudence with Roe, because the anti-abortion movement, the anti-choice movement has really made the history of abolition a cornerstone of their rhetorical arguments. That you will often see them comparing Roe to Dred Scott and that their movement are the news abolitionist. And I, I would just say I consider that a kind of stolen valor. And it's not just a bunch of dismisses argument, but actually also perhaps say that the, the real people who should be listening to looking to the abolitionists as a model are the pro-choice people and, and progressives more generally, that the abolitionists 
movement is the most important progressive movement in American history in uh, overcoming the tremendous evil that was chattel slavery and offering a model of political activism that's possible in a liberal democracy. Uh, people from a variety of backgrounds coming together and going against an entrenched power that is was the slaveocracy, uh, an entrenched power that extended far beyond the South and, you know, was like really had wrapped its fingers around the throat of political power and economic power in America. And it was an amazing thing that the abolitionists, abolitionists were able to counter that. And I think that's why uh, Linda's book is very important and, and I think very consciously has lessons for contemporary progressives on fighting the anti-choice movement, on defending reproductive freedom, but also on a wide variety of other issues like climate change, like police brutality, like the, this, this um, I think anything that we care about, uh, the abolitionists offer a kind of model. And so I, I wanna welcome Linda here and uh, also um, uh, perhaps get her to just start with the, the book itself because it, it's a narrative history, uh, very well told, and uh, it has three very, different people at the center and it, it tracks their story. So can you just tell us what your book is about? Sure, thank you so much for those kind words and for all your kind words over this difficult period. Abolition is, as you just said, the most important movement in American history and the most successful movement in American history. So I have always wanted to write about it because I write about social movements and I'm interested in more than anything else about them, I'm interested in how they succeed so that I can extract from them important lessons that I can then offer to people in the here and now. So abolition was the most successful. So I've always wanted to write about it. But, you know, a white woman in 21st century, maybe it's not my story to tell. And I was trying to figure out a way that I, I could get into it. And I read that William Lloyd Garrison, the father of modern abolitionism and the famous newspaper publisher, had actually printed the book that was Frederick Douglass, the Black Fugitive Slave Abolitionist's first memoir. Frederick Douglass told his story three times. And the first time he told it, it was in a book called The Narrative of Frederick Douglass, etc. And that book was printed at the print shop of William Lloyd Garrison. So I thought their relationship would be a very good way to talk about how people could act across racial lines to make social change. And they cooperated for 10 years or a little bit longer. And then they had a breakup. So it would be interesting to see how it worked and then how it failed to work. And then as I was just doing my research, I stumbled across references to Maria Weston Chapman, the white, rich, white socialite, Boston socialite, who, I, who was nicknamed the Contessa. And that then added the layer of gender and class into the story. So you had basically a very busy intersection, shall we say. And I used them, as I always use my characters, as an entry point to tell the story of the movement. It's the movement that really interested me. Yeah, no, no, I want to just maybe let's talk about some of these uh, people. And I think listeners will perhaps, you know, from history have, uh, I think, some familiarity with Douglas and also with Garrison. But I mean, you know, what would be the quick 
thumbnail sketch. I mean, like Frederick Douglass, uh, perhaps one of the most important Americans of the 19th century, a slave uh, was, uh, unlike most slaves, where reading was illegal, it was illegal to teach slaves to read in much of the South, you know, had acquired literacy and then, you know, became a very outspoken abolitionist and the sort of real, uh, in a great, in an age of oration, like the great speaker of that era. So anything more to say about Douglas? He was the most important American of the 19th century. And I am conscious of the existence of Abraham Lincoln when I make that statement. He was a genius. And without his genius, both in the spoken word and the written word, his speeches and his letters and his editorials that were poetry, uh, he deployed the word in the service of the abolition of slavery. Eventually, his supporters in England made a uh, fund and bought his freedom. So after 1847, um, and he lived well into the 19th century, way after the Civil War, um, he was a free man. So um, he was both a fugitive slave and then he was a, a freed slave. They bought his emancipation. So, and what interested me about him ultimately were two things. One was that he was not free to put any interest he had ahead of his interest in the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. So in any social movement, the people whose rights and survival are on the table, most importantly, are the people that you're going to have to pay attention to and listen to and take guidance from. And it was when the abolitionist movement failed to pay attention to what Frederick Douglass was telling them that they began to, the people who disregarded him, grew weaker and more marginal, less important to the movement. So Douglas represents that phenomenon. So in, for example, the current movement for women's uh, full citizenship, which at this moment is focusing around the repeal of our reproductive rights, it is very, very important lesson from Frederick Douglass is to listen to the people whose rights are most at risk. Mm -hmm. Both William Lloyd Garrison, who was the white abolitionist Massachusetts printer and the founding publisher of the Liberator newspaper and the founder of the first modern white anti-slavery society, because there, of course, had been black anti-slavery societies before 1832. Garrison was very interested in his own moral purity, and he could put that ahead of the fate of the slave. Because at the end of the day, he wasn't himself threatened with enslavement. And so when the moment came to choose between what would effectively end slavery and the purity of not involving yourself in the um, corrupt American nation under its corrupt constitution, Garrison chose his own purity over effectiveness, which he could do, which Douglas could not do. Douglas yep. said, I will go anywhere where speech is free and I can speak against the system of slavery. Yeah, no, and I, I think, I mean, uh, Garrison, I think in your account uh, and in many accounts, like he stands for so many different aspects in American culture, uh, well, some of them very admirable, which is the free speech element, you know, and the media element. I mean, uh, newspapers, you know, this is the great age of newspapers and he was really a pioneer 
and using newspapers to change things. But then there's also that sort of purity element, which I tend to think uh, comes out of sort of American Protestantism and the idea that, you know, if you don't like the, the corruption of the church, you just leave it and you found your own church and you go away. A kind of, you know, moral secessionism that one sees and so, you know, it has very admirable forms. I mean, this is the idea, the idea of you know, a thorough, right? You go, right. if society is bad, you leave society. And there's, there's, there's some power to that. But, but as you said, that's in tension with the people that are the most important in the story, which are the slaves and, you know, who don't have the option really of seceding from society. Garrison said that the Constitution was a bargain with slavery and nothing would do but that the North should secede from the corrupt constitutional order that the slave owner's constitution represent. That was a very pure position, but it was the legal theorists who cooked up a bunch of theories, which are in fact probably wrong, about why the Constitution did not 100% protect slavery who opened the door. If the constitution's not standing in your way, then you have an argument for politics, right? Yeah. The constitution rules slavery off the table uh, as the court said in Dred Scott, and it cannot even be discussed. Then you have no political movement. But these legal theorists, Alvin Stewart and Goodell, made arguments that the constitution did not uh, protect slavery 100%. And therefore you could make arguments to the political branches, the Congress and the president, to uh, legislate it away. And that then led to political abolition. That's right. No, that's interesting. And I think, um, I mean, a sort of cynical take, which might be useful in this age of sort of legal uh, ideologues, is that, you know, like, to some degree, the law is always what you can make of it. The law is what you can get away with. <laughs> and, so and, and we have to look at what their goals are. Yeah. So the false virtue of the anti-abortion faction asks you to look away from the fact that they are trying to oppress and strip the citizenship from more than 50% of the American population, it's women. Whereas the abolitionists were trying to bring the enslaved into full humanity. That's right, that's right, yeah. And I think the uh, third uh, part of your triangle is perhaps, I think, less known. And, uh, you know, is a very interesting character in her own right. Um, so do you want to say something about Weston Chapman? I think that... Uh, West, so Weston Chapman was a socialite. She married into an abolitionist family, a Boston Brahmin abolitionist shipping family. So she learned about abolition through her husband's family, the Chapmans, who were good abolitionists very early. But she walks in in her gorgeous clothes, and she was absolutely beautiful by all accounts. And she walks in in her gorgeous clothes, gorgeous by all accounts, to the uh, Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society meeting. And the people in the meeting thought she was a spy because they had never seen anyone that fancy come to one of their meetings before. And she had the privilege of a wealthy socialite woman so that she looked around at their pitiful little bazaar, which they raised a little money by selling products that weren't made with slave sugar or cotton. And she said, I actually think I could probably do this better and started running the bazaar to the point where it was the single most important fundraising vehicle for the abolitionist movement in Boston. 
So she brought to the movement the privilege and the assumption of her own privilege, which was very potent. And, you know, I'm always referring to my other movements in my other books, but the analogy to it is the role of the entitled white gay men in victory, the triumphant gay revolution. And I was interviewing one of them and he said to me, I actually thought I was going to be a United States Senator. And when I realized that because I realized I was gay, I was never gonna to get to be a United States Senator. It felt like a loss to me. Mm -hmm. He said this, I have it in my book. And um, I thought to myself, right, that sense of entitlement that white boys are raised with made them very powerful actors when they were denied what they thought they were entitled to. No, 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 that's right. And I think like, I mean, just to like locate her a bit more um, in the sort of sociology uh, of the period, I mean, you know, obviously women couldn't vote in that period, although the, the, the you know, feminist movement emerged out of the, these right. uh, struggles. But it is also the case that, you know, like in a kind of uh, liberal society, there was a lot of freedom to for organization. You know, women were like throughout America, uh, you know, like involved in all sorts of like social movements, you know, temperance. Uh, the Second Great Awakening. Huh? The Second Great Awakening, one I mean, of the things. Religious, the religious movements, education movements, uh, you know, like basically creating the school system. Um, and so, so, so that was like an avenue that was available to women. And I mean, it is the case. I mean, like the word privilege, I think it's flattened out a little bit, but it is the case that, you know, it's exactly the people who are privileged who are the most able to like affect social change. And in some ways, like in any movement, like it actually helps a lot, it speeds things up. If you have a few, you know, some privileged people, you know, who can knock those doors, who can raise that money and who have the, as you say, the confidence of thinking like, you know, well, they're entitled to rule. Right. Now that she also had the defects of her virtues. So yes. feeling like she was entitled to rule, she tried to manage Frederick Douglass after Douglass first came to the abolitionists after he escaped from slavery. And he went to one of their meetings and spoke and they immediately hired him because they're not stupid. Uh, she tried, and so he was one of their um, speakers on their speaking tour. And Maria Weston Chapman was managing the speaking tours. Indeed, Maria Weston Chapman was really managing the Boston abolitionist movement. As one of her critics said, she could uh, manage the men who looked like they were running the movement as easily as she could tie a garter. And so she raised the money and she tried to manage Frederick Douglass. And it should not surprise us to learn that Frederick Douglass, who basically taught himself to read against the prohibitions of the slave system in Maryland and then escaped and then became the most important man in the 19th century, was, did not take kindly to being managed. So her behavior toward him is responsible in part for pushing him out of the Boston movement which was a bad thing, the way that they spoke about him and she and her fancy friends in Brahm and Boston abolition, the way they talked about Douglas was unforgivable and the way they treated Douglas equally unforgivable. But, you know, it's almost enough to make you believe in God. It forced Douglas, who was a very important force in abolition, out of the purest abolitionist morality Boston morality wing and over to the political wing, which was run out of New York, which ultimately was where the action was. Yeah, no, that's right. So there had been like an earlier separation within the abolitionist movement between New York and Boston and the New York 
uh, people were in some ways like seen as the more conservative wing because they were, yes. they were willing to make compromises or willing to think strategically rather than like aiming for moral purity. So, so I mean, I think that the narrative that you tell, I mean, is really a drama about Douglas and it is a kind of, it's a tragic that the he had this separation, but it turns out like all for the best because it it, it pushes Douglas towards people that he can um, work strategically with. And while Douglas was on the road and stuff for the Boston brand, although he very quickly became his own man after he published his best-selling book, but while he was there, the New York branch and the upstate New York branch were developing their legal and political arguments and they were starting their little baby um, political party, which ultimately became, hello, the Republican Party. So this was happening while Douglas was just getting his spurs in the movement on the Boston side. And so when he both began to embrace the activism himself and also the Bostonians pushed him out, push-pull kind of breach there, there was a movement waiting for him. And when he broke with the Bostonians and started his own paper, The North Star, and moved to Rochester, he got a note from the leader of the upstate New York abolitionists saying, welcome to New York. Now, I think that the political element of this is, I think, very interesting and important. And there's like two sides of this, uh, or two dimensions of this, uh, one of which I think we've already like discussed the, you know, the division between sort of moral purists and people who realize that, you know, if you actually want to affect change, you have to gain political power. That is, you know, the state is a very, is the powerful actor. It's the Leviathan that can let you take on interests as powerful as the slave owners. Um, right. I, I think the other aspect, though, to think about is, though, what are political parties? Like, there's a sense in which, you know, there had been, you know, a Democratic Party and a Whig Party, and the Whig Party was like, you know, in the interest of staying in power, they tried to divide on the issue of slavery, to have the, you know, uh, no slavery in um, the uh, uh, North, uh, let the South as it uh, may, and there were Whigs elected, you know, in the South, you know, like the kind of what we would call the sort of blue dog Democrats. Cotton Whigs, they call huh? them. Yeah. Cotton Whigs. Yeah, Cotton Whigs, yes. So, but that compromise, you know, for a host of reasons that, uh, you know, your book gets into and is, uh, you know, a big topic in American history, you know, that that compromise couldn't work. But I think one of the most important things to realize is that the political parties, one can look at them as their own thing that they exist to uh, reproduce, to get elected and to offer jobs for their people or political parties exist on the service of some project and some cause. And that they, you know, like the, the, the Whigs, uh, you know, like I think the ultimate failure of the Whigs was that it was just existing for the sake of staying in power. And that was like not a tenable thing when there were forces pushing in both directions, the slave owners, we're not going to be satisfied with just being in the South. They wanted to expand into the West. And, you know, they wanted to, like, conquer Nicaragua and Mexico and you yeah, know, into yeah. those societies. So, uh, and then in the North, you know, like, obviously, you couldn't contain it. The, the project of the Whigs was to stay in power and contain slavery. And in some ways, you can't contain these social movements from both sides because both the slave owners wanted to expand. And then increasingly in the North, people were aware that both the horrors of slavery and also the fact that the um, uh, slave-owning power 
was never going to just stay in the South. And if you had slaves, you're going to have fleeing slaves. You're going to have a Fugitive Slave Act. You're going to have slaves arrested in Boston. As far as uh, fleeing slaves and slave people, you know, arrested in Boston and took back. There was no containing this. And uh, to me, I mean, when we talk, thinking about the resonance of your book to contemporary things, I mean, I think there are, you know, people in the Democratic Party now who kind of have a, a containment strategy, right? They think like, you know, like we, you know, we want the Democrats to be elected. We'll make some compromises to, to, to do that. And this will help contain the sort of forces of Trump and MAGA. And, uh, you know, like, but at some point, and, and one sees this now with like Roe being overturned there, there are people, you know, who aren't like religious fundamentalists who are saying, well, okay, you know, you won't have, you'll get the, uh, you won't have uh, abortion rights in Texas, and right. Mississippi, but, you know, you will have it in, you know, California and New York. And right. You can also have plan B and pills and well, right. they, they think this thing could be contained. And I think the lesson of like, Slavery is like, you know, you can't contain these things. They, they will not stay put. It's completely insane. I mean, the notion that, of course, this is the heart of my role as your personal Cassandra, which is I was teaching this fugitive slave cases to my law school classes when I was a law professor decades ago. And it occurred to me completely full blown as if the gods had spoken to me that that was what was going to happen with abortion rights. That when, remember, Casey, KCV Planned Parenthood, it was a 1992 case, okay? So that meant that Roe v. Wade was very threatened. It was the preliminary decision in Casey was to overturn Roe. So uh, it was very threatened. And I'm teaching the fugitive slave cases and the court is contemplating overruling Roe. So I saw right away that they were parallel because once you overturn Roe, then all of the forces of enslavement and oppression are simply going to keep trying to push the boundaries. And the women fleeing from Texas to California, you know, didn't take Cassandra to see how much they looked like the fugitive slaves. And then I started thinking about what did the South do to try to stop their slaves from fleeing into free, into free soil. And of course, uh, we saw the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which created an entire law enforcement mechanism to grab them without any kind of due process and drag them or any black person from that they could grab back into, into or back into slavery. So if you, if you are clear about what went on in the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the expansionists and slave power, then seeing what's happening now with Roe v. Wade is really relatively easy to see through. I think the political, I've been thinking about the political parties because my Twitter feed is full of people saying the Democrats are begging us to vote for them in the midterms, even though they won't do anything. And we need to start a woman's party, somebody said on Twitter today, which elicited the predictable reaction for me. That from me, that's crazy, okay? Do not take the establishment of the Republican Party as a viable third party, as a model for what needs to be done now. What the model for what needs to be done now is the far right takeover of the Republican Party. So the people with an aggressive pro-woman and racial equality and um, sexual orientation equality agenda need to capture the Democratic Party and in turn capture the machinery of the Leviathan, the state. It is not necessary to start a third party. The, we are not in the situation we were in in the 1850s when both 
parties were committed for their survival to the continuance of slavery. We have an aggressive conservative enslavers party in the Republicans, and we have a coalition of activists and spineless forces in the Democrats. The task now is, and essentially the Republicans did this with the Whig party. The Republicans basically took over the Whig party. That's basically what happened. And they, they deacquisitioned their cotton wigs and the conscience wigs became the Republicans. That's really what happened. So um, we can do that. We can do that now. And I actually do not believe in anyone giving, as you know, in anyone giving any money to anything except electing Democrats, enough Democrats, so that the whiny marginal mansion Democrats will not have the vote, decisive votes anymore. So that's the analogy that I would draw. I don't want people to read my book. Well, I, I think it's right that the there has already been a sort of sorting of the parties, right. on the issue of uh, uh, choice that one doesn't need like a you know, replication of the, and it just, it is a matter of the more activist uh, wing of the party taking it over. And the thing with American political parties is they are relatively easy, not relatively easy, but I mean, it's happened many times that they've been taken over by people. I mean, Goldwater took over the Republican yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we just yeah. so uh, it's 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 a very uh, doable project. Um, it's a very doable project. They have sorted. That's exactly right. And remember, the Republicans were not purists either. They they ran on a platform of not expanding slavery into the to beyond where it already was a non-expansionist platform, not on the abolitionist platform. Abolition, I think, was inevitable once Lincoln won the election in 1860, but in part, the fire eaters in the South brought their fate on themselves by seceding. So the, the Republican Party that now looks so great when we think about them as abolishing, you know, Lincoln, right? Were, they, were a, they were an alliance and they made a million compromises and they were not a purist party. Gradually, the radical Republicans took over the Republican Party and they, and they gave us reconstruction. We should only have stuck with it a little longer. But um, you, the Republican Party is really more a story for today. If you think of it as being a, a party that carefully moved into the mainstream as the Democrats became the party of the enslavers, and then they made a palatable pitch, let's call it Biden in 2020, and then the enslavers did something terrible and then the republicans got more radical yeah no i i, I think th that analogy uh, makes a lot of sense to me um and i mean i think the issue right now is to be very clear-sighted about just how you know radical things are going to be and we already have seen this i mean i think there's a real very clear parallel between the sort of bounty hunter law in texas and the sort of fugitive slave act and we're going to see like more of that and it will be. I mean, I I think you know, just as uh, as Lincoln said, a house you know um, divided. divided can't stand. You know, can it, and can't be half slave and half free. There's no federal solution to abortion. No federal solution. Because There's the, no right. Yeah, be, precisely because of the the anti-abortion side will not by their own logic they can't right they by their own logic if you can't just say well 
abortion is murder, we won't have it in Texas, but you can like fly over to like New York and commit murder. Like that is not how they think. That's not how they're going to behave. And they're not going to, and they already, and I mean, I've been having a lot of these fights on Twitter now because there are people who are saying, well, this is just uh, uh, overturning uh, Roe, but uh, there's a lot of other things that are still available. And it's like, and one shouldn't think that they're going to overturn you know, Griswold, um, let's say, uh, and you know, might get to other issues like Lawrence and uh, marriage equality. But I, I think even at Griswold, like if you look at the anti-abortion movement and what they're saying, and it's a very radical movement, which to their credit, like they've achieved their goal. They, they spent 50 years to achieve this moment. They have a very serious movement that understands power and wants to impose it, they achieved the, the goal of overturning Roe, but they can't stop at Roe because they themselves believe, it's in all their literature, they believe that they see Plan B um, and I- As in a board of facing. Right? Yeah, yeah, board of facing. And yeah. they will, it's not gonna end here. And so there's gonna be this radicalizing movement as well as people who are the sort of, you know, cotton wigs are still with us who will try to like, you know, pretend that, you know, things aren't that bad, that this, this movement isn't as radical as, uh, as it actually is. But so also, it, it isn't just that they think that abortion is murder and that they think that a fertilized egg is a person comparable to Frederick Douglass, which makes them the abolitionists, I suppose. Talk about appropriation. <laughs> but uh, it's not just that. It's that a big part of the agenda is reestablishing the hierarchy of white men over women. Mm-hmm. So it's a reestablishment of the patriarchy. And if your women can run away to California to get abortions, then they're really not that different from Frederick Douglass, right? Your servants are running away. And the hierarchy needs you to be able to stop them to keep them imprisoned in the um, unfree soil that you've taken over. So, so it's very important. And, and you know, one of the things you see in the conversations online and stuff is a kind of condescension toward emancipated women, overeducated, uh, not beautiful, can't get laid. There's a lot of uh, misogyny directed at the women that they will want to effectuate. And the only way that they can effectuate that is by stopping us from being able to control our reproduction. The feminist movement started with the invention of the pill, not the legalization of abortion. So if you wanna reestablish the pre-feminist patriarchy, you have to stop people from using birth control as well. And, And then you're gonna get a rollback of the Violence Against Women Act, which has already started, and you're going to get a a repeal of things like the Equal Pay Act and and stuff like that, all of the vehicles by which women have been made equal. If you think, so Samuel Alito invoked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, about whom I wrote another book, and Ginsburg was of the opinion that Casey, the decision that will actually be overruled in Dobbs, um, that Casey rested on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, right? That it was equality for women, supported abortion rights. So you're repealing abortion rights. Implicitly, you're not only repealing the right to privacy and all of the attendant cases like birth control and gay marriage and stuff. You're also repealing the equal treatment of women under the 14th Amendment. 
since, to quote Samuel Alito, the Constitution doesn't say women, not even in the 14th Amendment. That's right. Um, yeah. right. Uh, right. So if you repeal the women's equality in the 14th Amendment, then there's a real question in my mind about how Congress gets the authority to apply the Civil Rights Act to women, Title IX. And uh, I'm Cassandra. I see this coming. Overturn Casey. You overturn the implicit equal protection argument for women that's behind Casey. If you are, if you say the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to sex discrimination, then you have only the Commerce Clause to rely on if you're going to legislate women's equal rights in the workplace and stuff. And we've already seen the, the conservative justices start to roll back on Congress's commerce power. I think we could be looking at a repeal of the Equal Pay Act, striking down the Equal Pay Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as it applies to women because the word women doesn't appear in the Constitution. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is the logic of their position. And one, um, I mean, this whole issue of like, the women aren't in the Constitution, it's such a perverse thing, because of course they aren't, because the, the Constitution was written at the time of patriarchy. Uh, and even like, you know, like, I'm in, speaking from Canada, and in Canada, women were not granted legal personhood until 1929. Now, one could say, well, there's no like common law right for women to be persons by that logic. Uh, but I mean, the, I think the more correct reading is, well, that shows, you know, what patriarchy was and that there was a, there, there has to be a, like an effort to overturn it. I mean, Alito's, Alito's deference to history or his claim of history as the basis is a very dangerous kind of turn. Uh, it's very dangerous. He's basically saying it's very dangerous. That, the, that one has to accept not only the words 1783, but also the, the cultural logic and social system of 1783. Uh, it's just like uh, the, uh, or is it 1786? 1787. Yeah, 1787, 1787. So yeah, he's basically saying it's not just the, the text of the constitution that is authoritative, but also the, the social system that undergird that tact. But I, I think we've covered a lot of ground uh, here, and I want to I want to thank you. I would encourage everyone to go get um, Linda's book. Uh, some great history. You'll learn a lot, and you'll learn a lot of things that are very relevant for now. This is not an antiquarian book, you know. And it's not the kind of boy. The founding fathers were a great book. It's actually you know a book of like lessons for people today who are activists and who want to engage in politics for thinking about what are the dynamics in political movements. And I think I think this is a book that will both make you more knowledgeable about history and a better activist. And what more could one want? No uh, more. <laughs> I can die happy now. <laughs> okay, good. The, the, thank you. Thank you, uh, Linda. Thank you, Jake, as always. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.